welcome. I'm Boris Lamont. Thanks for joining us again for the New Zealand Wine Podcast, where we are on site at Rockburn Wines in the central Otago of New Zealand, speaking with Malcolm Rees Francis, who's the winemaker at Rockburn, and we have a chat about his experience of making wine in the region. So, right now, let's go have a chat with Malcolm. So, hi, Malcolm. Hi. <laughs> Good to be here in uh, in Cromwell. Welcome. Yeah, no, it's great. And um, so, yeah, it's um, just for our listeners in case they listen later on. It's it's um, I suppose getting to the near the end of winter 20, 2019. Um, so, what's what's going on for you at the moment? Um, yeah, at the moment we're focusing on bottlings. Yeah. Um, so we've got a fair whack of the 2019 has gone two bottle already, yep. and that's a that's a market driven thing. It's it's always go, always goes a little bit quicker than than I would like. Um, it's it's always nice to to have the wine sort of sit and relax in in tank and uh, before it goes to bottle because it tends to go through bottle shock even more dramatically the sooner it goes to bottle after vintage. So you know I I like to leave things a little bit a little bit later if possible, but. If the wine runs out, the wine runs out, and that's possibly my own fault for making tasty wines that sell too quickly. But um, so at the moment we've bottled uh, Pinot Gris and a couple of rosés and a chunk or two of our um, entry level Pinot Noir, the Devil's Staircase Pinot Noir, which was always bottled very early. It doesn't see any oak or anything like that, so it can can go to bottle quite quickly. Um, and is is easy drinking and, and readily drunk early on and, and that sort of style. So um, that's what's happening. Uh, we've got got one more bottling of that stuff coming up in a couple of weeks. So we're just prepping the wine and getting ready for that thing uh, at the minute. Right. Okay. And so you know, just um, heading heading back from here, then I mean, wine was uh, quite early on. Uh, something once you started thinking about a career that you thought could be a a career for you or could hold a career for you yeah so we're going going back to the the start of the millennium really at this point um i we're going to go right back i went when i went to university back in the late 90s and i was studying microbiology and and had a plan to um you know do weird and wonderful things in in that field of of science and um Towards the end of my years studying at Otago, I was like, maybe this isn't quite for me. Um, I wanted something a little bit more exciting and immediate and satisfying, perhaps. And uh, one of my classmates was going up to Lincoln um, to study winemaking up there. And this was the first time I'd even considered winemaking as any kind of opportunity. Um, and it really um, piqued my interest. So I started looking into it and, and, and tasting some wines, and there was a, a wine and food festival going on just around the corner from my flat that year. That was in 99, and headed along to that. And there was one particular winery. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was based down near Alexandra, and they had a pair of Sauvignon Blancs from Alex from their site there, and uh, they had their current vintage, the 99, and they had the previous one, the 98. Um, and, of course, we know now um, that these were two uh, highly con- contrasting years weather-wise. 98 was the hottest year on record at that point. We've had plenty of hotter ones since, but that's part and parcel of something else. Um, and these two Sauvignon Blancs really expressed that 
climatic change um, between 98 and 99. So the 98 was an extremely tropical passion fruity wine and the 99 was very grassy and herbaceous as as people would would were certainly expecting from Sauvignon Blancs at the time and this opened my mind to to huge and vast and wondrous vistas of what could be possible in the world of wine so I ended up writing letters away because that's what we did back then um, to various wineries around the country, just to select sort of a handful from what I could find the addresses for, and um, just asking them, basically, look, I'm thinking about a career in wine, what would you recommend as an entry point? And um, Glenn Thomas at Vavasaurs in the Aotearoa, Marlborough, uh, came back to me and said, come and do vintage, and you'll learn lots of stuff, you don't need to know anything, we'll, we'll point you at stuff and tell you what to do um, and so I did I went up there and we did I did vintage in, in 2000 it was a low yielding year and he was slightly overstaffed so we didn't have to work too hard and it was an extremely steep learning curve for me you know I didn't you know I found out about red wines that were called Pinot Noir and Cabernet Sauvignon and things like you know I didn't know anything um, and you know I was cleaning tanks and cleaning presses and cleaning barrels and then you know they didn't let me touch anything really serious but um it was a really great experience and I enjoyed every minute of it and I th was thinking right this is this is something that could be a real go for me so you know I had this hankering to to carry this sort of thing on in central Otago because it's this magical wonderful romantic ideal of a place and like I say, I didn't know much about Pinot Noir or styles or varieties of wine or anything, but I was pretty sure I wanted to do the thing down here. So again, wrote away some letters and um, Gareth King, the viticulturalist at Felton Road, came back to me and said, oh, um, I'm, I was back home in Waimati at this point. He said, oh, I'm passing through your way in, in, a, in a week or so and let's, let's meet up. And I met him there and we did a quick couple of questions and he said, yeah, come and, come and work in the vineyard. So... And it was very small back then. There were about three of us in the vineyard. Um, so it was just the elms, and they were looking after the sluicings site down the road, which was a baby vineyard. So, um, you know, just, just taking care of baby vines down there. Um, and did that. And I enjoyed, you know, the vineyard side of things as well. And um, ended up doing a little bit of stuff in the winery with Blair. And I was very sure that this was what I wanted to do with my life and so and realized also that I wasn't going to get the kind of job I wanted without the kind of qualifications as necessary so off to Lincoln in 2001 and I kept coming back in the holidays to Felton Road uh, for vintage which was Easter and came back in the winter holidays and did some pruning and stuff um, and then back in for the next season after after Lincoln finished and um, Nigel Greening had just bought the place in 2000, so they were looking to expand mightily from then on, and Blair was like, right, I'm going to need an assistant winemaker, and I was the Johnny on the spot. So, um, so I was the first assistant winemaker at Felton Road, and I was there for five years, and did some vintages over in Oregon during that time as well, um, which is another really wonderful part of the world, and, and they make fantastic Pinot Noir up there. 
and got this gig at Rockburn um, in late 05. Um, it had been, Rockburn label had been made by Rudy Bauer at Quartz Reef until that point, but okay. um, the directors were of the opinion that they really needed to focus and build their own winery and have their own winemaker. So um, they found me. Every winemaker and his dog um, applied at the time. It was towards the end of vintage of 05, so there were a lot of high-caliber people in the region from around the world, and they all applied, and I was, I was the lucky one. Um, and so we put together a, a winery in town on McNulty Road and got that set up for 2006 and carried on. Right, okay. And so you'd... Um just trying to think through the years. And so you'd finished your, finished your studies by that, that Yeah, so then? Lincoln, I did the post-grad diploma at Lincoln. Right. So I had my degree in microbiology from Otago. Right. And so a post-grad um, in PG Dip VNO um, at Lincoln as a one-year course. Right, yep. Yeah. Okay. So that was 2001. Right, so yeah, well and truly out of the way. Chucked it yeah. into the air, yeah, right, good. ticked the box, got the certificate, carry on. Because yeah. you, learn, you learn this sort of thing on the job. Yes. And because it already had the, the year or so in the industry learning the stuff before I went and studied it, I knew what I needed to know and what I didn't need to know, and so I could actually be really focused about it. Versus, right. you know, there were some of my classmates who were coming from all walks of life, lawyers and dentists and all that sort of thing, um, um, tourism operators, and were just sort of feeling their way through. But I was like, right, no, I need to do this and this and this and this and that essay I'm not going to worry about. And I'm going to do it in Central Otago, so I don't need to focus on pests and diseases because it's very, very few diseases in Central Otago because it's so dry. So right. I won't even focus on that. Um, so yeah, and you know, met some really great people and made some really great friends, and and some of them are making wine down here in the region too. Too, yeah. 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 So yeah. so yeah, um, but yeah, short and sweet, and then into it. Right. Yeah. Yep. And so that was setting up at McNulty Road. Yes. So, yep. Yep. And then, so how long did you um how long did you run run out of there? We were we were there just about ten years. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we already had all the tanks and stuff um, around at Rudy's, at Quartz Reef. Um, so we had that and we just needed a building and the infrastructure to make it all work. So I got to um, design that and sort of put one or two cutesy little things into play from, from things I'd learnt from other wineries overseas and here. Um, focusing on Pinot Noir, obviously, which is what we mostly do, and being as gentle as possible. So I designed this overhead destemming system for our fermenters, and it runs along on, on rails, um, so we can destem directly into each fermenter individually, um, and being as gentle with every single grape as possible. Um, and that system is, has worked very well for us in the, in the years in between. So yeah, 15 years or so I've been doing this now. So mm -hmm. yeah, for mm -hmm. Rockburn. Mm. Yeah, cool. Cool. Okay, and then um, and then so yeah, eventually you came out here. Yes. Yep. Yes. So moved is, out um, here uh, to Riffinvale Road um, at the start of 2016. So this was uh, a site that had been reworked as a winery site by a company that had since gone well defunct. Um, but there was a lot of stuff, a lot of space out here, buildings, big insulated. 
building. Um, there was all the reticulation of glycol. They'd left all the um, refrigeration compressors and stuff like that here. Um, so it was really just a matter of just bringing all of our stuff with us out here, plugging it all back in and, and carrying on. Yeah. So, yeah, um, so yeah, it's just, just a matter of fitting it in between racking and bottling the, the 2015 Pinot, so everything was empty, and then shifting it all out and, and carrying on. And 2016 was not, not a late vintage, so it was a little bit pressed for time. But uh, that's the nature of the industry. If you weren't <laughs> pressed for time, then <laughs> you don't know what's going on. Yeah, no, right. Yeah. And, yeah. and so your vines are, um, whereabouts are your vines situated so we, around? We have two estate vineyards. So our biggest one is at a spot we call Parkburn. Um, so it's just shy of the, the Amersfield Winery and Vineyard site, um, just south of the Parkburn itself, running down um, out of the hill. So on the road to Wanaka, on the highway there, um, there's terraces uh, to the west, up into the Paisa Range. So our main site is on, on one of those. And then we have a slightly smaller site through in Gibston, up on the back road. Um, and one of the really interesting things about Central Otago is how disparate our subregions are. Um, none more so than, than between our two sites. Our Parkburn site, we will harvest a good month ahead of our Gibston site. So I can fill the winery with fruit, have it fermented, and certainly on its way out and into barrel or other tanks or whatever, in time for the Gibston harvest to start and of course this means that we basically do two vintages back to back because we've started one and basically finished it and then we start again right yeah, yeah. So, and that's so that's so that's consistently about a month Con more or less more apart. or less and how and and so as you say i mean it's it's not far apart is it how how far are we talking oh, about as, as, as the crow flies it's bugger all <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 but there's a bloody great mountain range in between yeah, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it has an impact yes i mean we're we're very dry here in, in the Cromwell Bay Basin, um, semi-arid desert, semi-alpine desert, semi-desert sort of situation, um, 500 mils of rain or less per year um, versus, you know, just through in the Gibston, there's significantly more rain, sort of over 600 and, you know, down in Fiordland there's two metres. So... Um, Yes, it's dry here and it's cold here, but, but grapes love it when it's dry. It's very, very important, and it's very important for Pinot Noir, and it's that diurnal range that, that really helps create the, the quality that we see in the fruit. Uh, those hot days, you get the heat spikes into the 30s, but then it cools right down at night, um, and that helps retain acidity and freshness and, and, and those those um, fruit precursors in, in the berries um, that make such luscious and tasty wines for us. Right, yep. And so uh, over the time you've been with Rockburn, have you been pretty much consistently working with the same varietals? Or Yes. Yep. yep. Yes. Yep. Um, when we started, we had we had some Gewürz, but that, that went the way of the dodo um, for various reasons. One being it really didn't cope well with frosts at all. Um, so I'd only cropped about three times in the, the eight or nine years that I was having to deal with it. So I didn't have to deal with it very much. Um, and we've still got Sauvignon Blanc. Um, we did have it in both sites 
uh, Gibson Valley is not a good place to grow Sauvignon Blanc. Um, so it's not there anymore, but we still have it um, in our Parkland site. And I do a barrel conditioned um, uh, situation with that. So it all goes to oak and it ferments completely naturally. It doesn't have any additives or sulfur or nothing's, nothing's thrown in apart from Sauvignon Blanc juice. Um, and it does its own thing. Um, and we've got Pinot Gris, though that is mostly sourced out of the Gibston these days. And Pinot on both sites. And Riesling we still have here at, at Parkburn. Um, although sales of Riesling are so dire, I don't know if it's going to going to hold on for very much longer, frankly. So um, Riesling was always the, the next big thing throughout the bulk of my career until the wine writers decided that... <laughs> <laughs> they were running, running the flag up the wrong pole, and no one was listening. So, um, yeah, I think they've decided no riesling is not the next big thing, and something else is going to be the next big thing instead. So, oh, well, that's a shame. It, it is. It's a massive shame. I mean, the riesling is is something that any any and every winemaker I've ever spoken to is is a big fan of riesling, but but the the public doesn't appreciate it the way we do mm. uh, it's a real shame it has much more character and, and interest than, than almost any other white variety grown in, in this country um, but maybe it's it's just too too much <laughs> maybe it's too insist upon itself too much and, and people want something that's a little little easier to understand or doesn't command their attention quite so much right so like like a Chardonnay did you see like Chardonnay a, oh, sort of well, coming, I mean Chardonnay back? gosh just in my career Chardonnay went from being the bee's knees mm. and you know everybody was in love with a big buttery oaky morass um, and then all of a sudden everybody railed against it and went the other way and were drinking Pinot Gris instead and then Chardonnay has started to come back but more in the lean and elegant Chablis sort of a style which which is my preferred style um, but there's also the big oaky ones bouncing back too so mm. Chardonnay is, is bouncing back we we had Chardonnay planted um, and I made it in a mostly stainless fermented style, a little bit of oak in there. But then, again, the market sort of didn't really want it so much, and so it got pulled out, and now the market is demanding it again, so we planted we planted a hectare this year. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 So that's quite exciting. I mean, it's been a while since I've made Chardonnay, and I do like I do like Chardonnay. I do like making Chardonnay. So, so is that, is that um, here? You planted that up in yes, in our Parkburn yeah. site. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, you know, it's it's quite easy to get it get it ripe enough here. And when I when we had it planted, it was always the first thing that we picked. Um, it can can get very ripe very quickly in that spot. But we've got it wasn't it wasn't the best clones. We had a, a massive mix of of clones. Um, there it was it was really really planted to provide bubble base um, for for Rudy back in back in the day was the main intention um, so it wasn't wasn't designed for for fine van de Taube, but um, we've got a, a superior clone in there a single clone in there now so I'm got my fingers crossed basically right, right okay and yeah. and so sounds like it'll be more in the Chablis style than the, than the like big buttery style that's that's, yeah. that's your preference? My preference, and, yeah. it, and it does suit 
the soil types around here. You know, mm. the soil here is mostly rocks <laughs> and some dust in between. So, um, and you know, schist seems to seems to seems to generate um, that 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 lean sort of character that that you see from from uh, you know the 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 muscle beds of of Chablis. So, yeah. Um, Pure when, fruit and, and 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 texture and and harmony and you know there's some great chardonnays being made in Central Otago but there mm. there there's not many yeah mm. and when, when would it be looking like for your first vintage of uh, chardonnay two three probably three years three sensibly years. Yep. yeah yeah it's, it's a wee way away but yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> they go faster and faster yeah yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, well, that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, anything else you're seeing that's happening around in the region that's that sort of piqued your interest or you know, further afield? Is anything else you've sort of seen coming out and gone, oh, that's a, you know, somewhere else around the country or? Um, people have been planting Chenin Blanc and things like that down here, and mm. that's that's really exciting. Chenin's one of my favourite wine varieties out of out of its home in, in the Loire, Vouvray. Um, some of my favourite wines and some of the most ageable wines in the world. So I'd like to see that develop further and, and really kick in, but I haven't seen the demand for it yet, so it's, it's pretty niche so far. Mm. Um, also, there's more and more folk down here making orange wines, amber wines, skin contact whites. Um, again, it's still very niche, um, but it's something I've been playing around with a little bit too. Um, I can make stuff disappear fairly happily because we have enough big volume whites that, you know, a couple of barrels of something experimental needn't, needn't um, be a problem. But um, it's something I've been experimenting with and, and hopefully we're refining towards a point where we can, we can launch onto the market one day and, and really make people excited. But, you know, the market does need to exist first. Um, and yeah, you know, the whole natural wine movement is something people do tend to talk about a lot. It doesn't perhaps have the market that uh, that they think it does, given the the chatter that is generated. But it's it's something that I'm keeping an eye on. And certainly, in terms of my winemaking style, I'm not that far removed from the natural winemaking um, ethos in that I don't add anything if I don't have to. So um, we had uh, a natural winemaking working under our roof using our, our facilities for for some years, um, Yashiaki Sato and his brand of, of wines. It's called Sato and making some really interesting stuff. Um, but in terms of what he added to his wine versus what I added, it's basically the same. Like he would throw in a bit of sulfur at the end um, and I would use, you know, some more sulfur, but that's literally all I'm adding most most of the time. You know, I'm not adding yeast unless I absolutely have to and things like that. So um, watching the natural winemaking movement sort of carry on um, to its logical c- conclusion is, is being really interesting. And I've, I've had some, some natural wines that have been really amazing and really interesting and, and really worthy of conversation. And I've also had some ones that were just diabolical, just... Yeah. Just made me not want to drink wine anymore. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, so so you keep an eye on that, and and it has advised my own style in, in the winery to a certain extent. So I'm, I'm 
over the years I've done done less and less and less to the wine from from when I started to what I what I do now. So looking for, um, as always, the most honest expression of of wine and certainly of Pinot Noir that I can because that's what Pinot Noir is for. It's it's the one variety that you can rely on to express sight and season. Riesling is the the white one that does it best, but Pinot Noir, no other red variety can do it like like Pinot Noir. And that's that's the point of the thing. That's what makes it interesting and exciting and and worth seeking out and worth the price. Um, So, you know, that honesty is what I'm always looking for in in my winemaking. So always just trying to let the fruit express itself. I keep my fingers off it as much as possible. There's, you know, there's odd wines where where I'll pull out all the stops and, and maybe give the people something completely different and say, look, if I'm going to use all my winemaking techniques, we'll get this kind of wine, and that's interesting too. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the time, it's like, here's something that's just really pure. Um, we have two sites, and our wine is blended from those two sites, so we don't have a single terroir to talk about. But what I'm always trying to do is give that, that overview of Central Otago out of a vintage. So between Gibston and, and Parkburn. So Parkburn makes up, you know, about 85-odd percent of the blend. So it's right. the bulk of it. Yep. And that gives us really plush tannins, bright fruit, quite dark fruits um, in terms of the profile, whereas Gibston will give um, far more tannin structure and those, those more leafy herbal um, really borderline notes that really kick the whole thing up a notch. If our wine was just from Parkburn, it would be very, very, very drinkable, but far less memorable than it is with the Gibson component. Mm-hmm. So right. the Gibson component is really bringing the mystery mm-hmm. into the whole situation and, and really expanding the story. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. And then you're having to... Um because they do have, you know, we talked about earlier, quite different um, climactic conditions. Yes. So the, the, the two components that you bring together can change quite a bit as well. Can yes. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's a synergy, and it's you know it's it's more than the sum of its parts. Mm. Always. Um, and back when I started, back in the two thousands, early two thousands, and a good year in Gibston was was few and far between. There was maybe one in seven. Was a really cracking year in Gibston, but. Our top wine, so I have a, a reserve wine that, that comes from my favourite parcel in any given year. Um, the last three out of three out of the last four have come from Gibston. So whether that's a climate change thing as well, almost certainly, um, and also me interpreting the vineyard better as well, um, and falling in love with that air of mystery that that Gibston can provide. Um, and so that's that's where you can get a really really interesting little story being told mm. in the, those those bottlings from that specific site and telling the story of that terroir that site and season, um, which is what it's about. It's what Pinot Noir is for. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. Uh, cool, very good. And um, so yeah, we sort of get, get into the end. If, if um, we finish on the question, if you could have any glass of wine with anyone, yes, uh, at any place, <laughs> yes, um, who and what and where would that be? Yeah, um, I did. I did have a think about this, and I, I have. I have 
people have asked me this question before, right. to be fair. Okay. Um, so I sort of went back to that. But um, one of my favourite authors, Ian M. Banks, um, was a frightfully clever man um, with, a, with a really curious, dark view of the world as well. Um, and he passed away, what, a year or two years ago now. Very suddenly he was sort of given three months to live and then he had about three weeks. Right. Um, so he was taken too soon and too dramatically. Um, and he was a great lover of whiskey. If you can, you can s- s- source out his book on, on travels of finding the perfect dram, that's, that's well worth a read too. Right, okay. Um, but he was a big fan of uh, Chateau Moussa, which is um, a relatively illustrious winery in Lebanon where they literally have to duck under crossfire when picking the grapes. Um, it's not far from Beirut. Um, and he was a big fan of that wine. Um, so I think probably probably either that or if we were going to have a white... Um, I mentioned I mentioned Chenin Blanc and Vouvray and the, the Marc Bredif uh, 1986 is one of my favourite wines. Um, like I say, very ageable and it's drinking really well even even now so mm. um that would be that would be a fun fun pair of wines perhaps to try um with him and and have a chat about how the world is and how it should be and how it could have been and where it's going but um because he he sort of wrote sort of right across science fiction and then yeah. into other sort of more what we i don't know i call some more standard fiction as yes. well but some quite exceptional that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and some real deep layers in his science yes, fiction. And, yes, yeah. and, and, and some very dark stuff. And um, you've got to got to have a relatively strong stomach for atrocity to <laughs> to dig deep into his work. So, um, yeah, really interesting guy. Um, right. And in terms of location, there's you know some somewhere around here would be really good. You know, you can't really beat. Uh, a central Otago sunset um, in, in late summer, maybe maybe through in the Wakatipu. You know, if, if you're up in the skyline um, where the luges and things are, you go up the gondola to the skyline, and if you're up there at sunset, um, it takes your breath away. So mm. that would be cool. Yeah, nice. Very good. Very good. Oh, that's fantastic. Thanks, Malcolm. Appreciate that. Pleasure. Thanks for your time today. Nice Thank to be you. here. <laughs> cool. All right. Cheers. Cheers. We've been speaking with Malcolm Rees Francis, who's the winemaker at Rockburn Wines in Central Otago, New Zealand. If you'd like to find out more, you can go to rockburn.co.nz, R-O-C-K-B-U-R-N.co.nz. Uh, be also sure to check out some of the other great New Zealand wine podcasts where we talk with other people involved in the industry here in New Zealand. And go along to podcast.nz and check out podcasts on some other great topics that you might enjoy listening to. And this episode was brought to you by Bizibu. If you've got a great business idea, let's get it started. B-I-Z-E-B-U.com. Thanks for listening in. We appreciate your company. Hey, Kona mai. Bye for now. <laughs>